Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I could see from the jet bridge, I could see the whole train, you know, it was burning. I saw something hit it. As I'm walking through the airport, I'm watching the flight attendants running through the airport screaming, it's us, it's us. I had no idea it was American that had hit the, the towers. You know that LA flight? I said, yeah. He goes, we were never going anywhere. He says, this was, this was a sting operation by the FBI. They took a few guys connected with the hijacking off the LA flight at the next gate. I was on flight one from JFK to LA that morning. The FBI told me that we were supposed to hit the Sears Tower in Chicago that morning. Once the service was over, one of the marshals walked up front to first class and I followed him up there and I said, okay, what's going on? He said, well, he goes, if you want the truth, he said they're part of a terrorist cell that we're watching. And this was six years later. Okay. There's so much that people don't know. Okay. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview with with Carol Hellerman. She has a contradictory story to the national or the historic narrative of 9/11. Um, she's got a lot of uh, interesting, uh, a lot of interesting and contradictory situations or events that occurred, and we're going to talk to her about it. And it's going to be a super interesting interview. And so I appreciate you guys watching. Check it out. Let's let's start real quick, like with you know where you were raised, how you became oh. a flight, that sort of thing. Okay. So how how where were you raised? Okay, I was raised on Long Island. I'm a true New Yorker. Okay. Um, I grew up and didn't realize the job that I wanted since I was 12 years old until I was 40. I didn't become a flight attendant until I was 40. Um, I basically raised my daughter and then became a flight attendant and a year and a half into my um, uh, new job, 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. So um, I was on a flight at Kennedy Airport. We were scheduled at 9 o'clock to leave to go from JFK to L.A. And um, obviously about quarter after, I'm mean, sorry, quarter till 9, the plane hit the World Trade. I was directing at the front door of the airplane, um, and which means, you know, I was showing, it was a, it was a big plane. So I was showing which side of the plane for the people to go on. And the agent came down and she pulled me off the plane and said, look at this. And she pulled me off and I could see from the jet bridge, I could see the world trade, you know, it was burning. I saw something hit it from the jet bridge. When you say the agent, you mean the agent with the, the airline. Agent, yeah, yeah, with American Airlines, yeah, the gate agent. So I was like, oh, wow, you know, and my first thought was everybody else's thought. Oh, some poor guy had a heart attack at a small plane. And, you know, you don't really think that at that point. And that's exactly. Well, I, I actually remember thinking like, wow, like how would how did how could that have happened? Like those plant those buildings are so like, you know, I was like, like, it, it you know, 
I remember thinking something's definitely wrong. Like you wouldn't accidentally hit that. Like, you know, you're right. Like maybe there was like, a pilot, yeah, something yeah. went wrong. That's not an accident. Right. Thought it was an accident that maybe had a heart attack and Right. Exactly. Like something there was definitely not like, oh, you clipped the building. It was like, no, there's no way to miss those buildings. Something definitely you know, like you said, somebody became dis uh incapacitated or something. Something, yeah. So um, I go back on the plane and I run to the back to tell the other flight attendants in the back of the plane, you know, that a plane hit the building, whatever. Um, then I go back up front and I hear the captain make an announcement. Captain says, um, ladies and gentlemen, due to an air disaster, our flight's been canceled. First thing I want you to do is say a prayer. Second thing I want you to do is pick up your luggage and leave quietly. Um, I was like, wow, they canceled this. Okay. Um, so meanwhile, I'm not thinking anything's going on. I'm just, you know, so all of a sudden three or four Middle Eastern men came up to the front of the airplane with everybody else who was deplaning and started arguing with my purser. The purser is a lead flight attendant who handles like any problems on the flight. And they were saying, you can't cancel this. And they were like, basically getting really angry with her. You know, meanwhile, we don't think anything because nothing like that's ever happened. I mean, you know, you're not thinking anything about it. You know, they were just angry they couldn't go, you know. So they get off the plane, everybody deplanes. And believe it or not, I was probably the last person in America to know that uh, what was going on. Because what we did is we stayed on the airplane, the flight attendants, and said, well, you know, sometimes if things cancel, scheduling, you know, with American will put you on something else or, you know, so we were wondering what, you know, what was going to happen with us that day. So all of a sudden the gate agent runs back on the plane and she says, another plane hit the World Trade and one hit the Pentagon. She goes, you need to go, you need to get off the plane. They locked down Kennedy Airport and you need to go to operations. Um, all, um, airports that have a hub, have an operations for flight attendants, which is a room, you know, where we can stay and, you know, hang out, TV and whatever, you know, right. little lounge for the flight attendants. So we all went up to operations and basically, um, the plane, uh, the, um, we watched the planes fall on the TV. You know, and you could have heard a pin drop, and it was just right. Was talking. Then they said, "Okay, it's um, they're throwing everybody out of Kennedy. They're evacuating Kennedy. You all have to leave." So we were thrown out. Um, there was a lot going on when I walked to operations. I had no idea what was going on when they, you know, locked down Kennedy. As I'm walking through the airport, I'm watching the flight attendants running through the airport screaming, it's us, it's us. I had no idea it was American that had hit the, the towers. Um, so as a New Yorker, as a brand new flight attendant, and you know, they, they hit my company, they hit my city, they, I was just so angry. I did not get scared. I was just mad. Right. So then when I went home, like the next day, 
I called our schedulers and said, I will fly for you. You put me on the next flight going anywhere. I, you know, I want to help out. So the next day, um, they got me a trip to San Francisco. And I said, okay, well, what position? Because every flight attendant has a position that gives you responsibilities of what you do on the airplane. So um, they said, what position do you want? <laughs> and at a year and a half, you don't get stuff like that. You just get what's left over because you're, you know, it all goes by seniority. So I get to the plane. Well, actually, I get to Kennedy. I go into operations to sign in so they know I'm there from our trip. Um, I sign in and I find out that there were three flights that are going out that, that night, San Francisco, Miami, and LA. And if you think about it now, like later on, I thought about it. Those were all places to escape from the U.S. that weren't the East coast where the terrorists were all concentrated. If you understand what I'm saying. So. We, as I'm walking to my flight, there's an LA flight over to the right of me that day, to the right, to the, I'm sorry, to the left of me. As I'm walking by, I see all kinds of commotion going on. Uh, there was like Port Authority cops. There was like everything going on, but I just continued to walk to my flight. Arasini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible. So I get to my flight and, you know, we're on the plane and the plane was packed. Everybody was trying to get out of New York. Um, the only flight attendant that was there that was had more, more years with the company than me was a San Francisco woman who wanted to try and go home. The rest were all brand new flight attendants and they were crying. And I said to them, why are you here? And they said, well, we're brand new and you know, we're on probation. They told us if we didn't do the flight that, you know, they would fire us, which is, um, so I basically had a year and a half had to take like half of them under my wing and show them what to do on the plane. Anyway. So all of a sudden, we're delayed a little while. The captain comes on and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, due to air traffic, our plane has been, our, our um, plane is, it's been delayed. The flight's been delayed. So I look at the other flight attendant and I say, 
Nobody's up there. What is he talking about? Air traffic. So all of a sudden, people are on their phones, all the passengers, and they're like, we heard that they found um, people with box cutters and knives, knives on the L.A. flight next to, you know, at the other gate and blah, blah, blah. And I basically took control and said, look, until the captain tells us what's going on, you know, everything's okay. Just, you know, hang out. So after about another half an hour, the captain comes back on and he says, ladies and gentlemen, our flight's been canceled. So I'm like, okay, great. So, um, they deplaned Why, why, what, do you know why it was canceled? Because of the... I'll tell you why it was canceled. Okay. All right. Um, so we, we waited behind, like, the flight attendants who were working the flight, and there were other flight attendants on the plane who wanted to go home to San Francisco, so they were just riding, like, with the passengers. So we all stayed behind, we're talking. Passengers are long gone through the terminal by the time we leave. We get off the plane, we come out. We start to walk down the terminal, and somebody, I don't know who it was, yells, turn around and run. So we start running down the end of the terminal. I'm standing next to the captain. I said, what the hell's going on now? He goes, you know that L.A. flight? I said, yeah. He goes, we were never going anywhere. He says, this was, this was a sting operation by the FBI. They took a few guys connected with the hijacking off the L.A. flight at the next gate. They told the pilots. They didn't tell the flight attendants. I had no idea. Okay. So um, we waited down there until somebody told us that we could walk by. Um, as I was walking, I saw a manager that I know, American manager, take the flight attendants from the L.A. flight into a little room. It's a debrief room. And they took he took them in there. And if you could have seen their faces, they looked like somebody shot them. I mean, they looked shook up, just awful. Um, so I continued to walk down to get to my car to go home. And as I looked at the gate where the L.A. flight was, there was a FBI SWAT team guy standing at the door with a rifle. Right. Okay. So my thing is, I don't know how they got away with that without it coming out. Nobody, it was never reported. Although, however, my mother was watching TV and she called me that night. And, you know, I told her we didn't leave. I called her on the way, you know, back to my, my home. And she said, I was wondering, she goes, I was watching TV and the news cut in and said, Justin from Kennedy Airport. She goes, and then they cut to commercial and they never came back to it on the TV. So I'm like, mm, that's interesting. So basically, you know, that happened. So then I go and decide to um, volunteer again to do another flight. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Actually, I have to I have to say something. Why I thought with the bridges and the tunnels, and you know, New York was locked down. I was going to say, yeah. Why I thought I was going anywhere on an airplane like the day after 9-11 is beyond me. 
I just didn't think about it, I guess. Yeah, when you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, it was everything was closed for like a week. Uh, four days. Four days? Because on the fourth day, I um, I got a flight. I brought one, of, I rode, they call it deadheading. I rode on a plane. I deadheaded to San Diego and brought the first transcon back from San Diego to New York. Um, this is now, this is where I get my information. I'm on the plane, we're working the flight, and captain, there's, there's a employee captain riding on the plane to New York. He's not working it. So the captain comes to the back and he starts talking to us. And he says, yeah, he goes, I was on flight one from JFK to LA that morning. The FBI told me that we were supposed to hit the Sears Tower in Chicago that morning. And then he asked me if I had any information. And I told him, why didn't you talk to the flight attendants? What are you asking me for? They were out there with the people, you know? So I said, really, you're on flight one? I said, so is on. And he told me that the FBI told him that there was a target for every building in the U.S. This is what he told me, okay? Like I said, this is what the captain told me. I had no idea that I was supposed to hit the Sears Tower that morning on my flight. Um, but putting together why these Middle Eastern men were arguing with my purser, kind of, you know, he kind of put the pieces together after a while and, uh, you know, basically that tied it all in together. So. Um. So the the TMZ documentary, you know, goes over some of this. Right. Um, like, is that is that when you decided like you were gonna go ahead and? No. Actually, I had talked to Jesse, who is um my publicist. I talked to him way before the TMZ thing came out, and I have post traumatic stress, so I really didn't want to do this. Right. Basically said to me, you really need to do this after that came out. Because I basically told him, I don't know, I don't think I can do this. Then after the fifth plane came out, he said, you really need to do this. Look, other people are finally coming forward with this information. So, no, it wasn't based on that. Because okay. I had told him that way before, right before the TMZ came out. So, really? yeah. But... There were other flight attendants um, that I know that told me that there were, um, that morning at a JFK, they were flying London, and they said that there were suspicious people on their flight too, that they thought they were going to be hijacked also, and they thought about it later on. That it, it was all over. There was, there's a site um, on Facebook that only flight attendants are privileged to. Nobody else can get on that site. And after the TMZ thing, a few of them were talking about um, how they landed. And when they grounded all the airplanes, a few of them were talking about how they were, um, they landed in Kansas City and the FBI came on their plane and took like guys off of their plane in Kansas City when they grounded it. They weren't going to Kansas City. I think they were going to LA or something, but, or San Francisco or someplace. But they when they grounded all the planes, they landed it in Kansas City. And the FBI showed up and pulled several pulled people off. Yep. these Middle Eastern men? Yes. Yep. 
And also, um, what was the other one? There was another one, um, I was at London, but the, this was happening. What I'm saying is people are, you know, saying, Hey, you know, after they saw the TMZ thing, this happened on my plane, you know? So, so you believe it's more than, so you're saying it's, it's more than just one, a fifth plane. There were multiple other planes. Oh, definitely. So why do you think the FBI or the government in general would, would not let that be known? Well, first of all, um, I think it would scare the American public so badly that nobody would get on a plane for a very long time and that would kill the economy, which is what the terrorists were aiming for. Right. Which, which was, which really devastated the airline industry in general. With just the the four planes, if they thought this was a a concentrated effort that could be duplicated, then that may, it may have been even more catastrophic. Right. And if you think about it, logically, um, after 9-11, they sealed off New York and a few other places, right? It was locked down. Nobody could get in or out, right? Why? Because there were other terrorists in the area. There were other planes. There were other people in the area they needed to catch. So, yeah, it makes sense. You know. But, um, yeah, also, one of the reasons I also want to talk about it is because the flight attendants don't get enough credit for 9-11. It really galls me that one of the main reasons that they grounded those planes so there were no other incidents is because two of the flight attendants on... um, Flight 11 that went into the World Trade called base operations from the airport. They called their operations center and reported exactly what was going on on that plane. So prior, prior to taking off? Prior to hitting the building. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were in the air. And they called base operations and told them what was going on on the airplane. I know what it was, and it, it was not... It was not pretty, let's put it that way. Um, They basically described everything that was happening. One of the flight attendants was still on the phone with operations when the the plane hit the building. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I read the the 9-11 report. Yeah. Probably five or six years ago. So if it hadn't been for those flight attendants, and I believe it was one... um, it was an air traffic control guy who basically said they told him he had to wait or something for some kind of authorization to stop, to start landing all the planes. And he said no, and he did it. But, you know, between him and the two flight attendants, that's the reason why that, you know, it saved a lot of grief in this country. So, so after all of this, were you got, were flight attendants given additional training on or anything along those lines? Okay, what happens with a flight attendant is once a year, um, hopefully you don't use what you're trained for. Flight attendants are not trained to serve your drink. They're trained for terrorism, medical um, evacuation procedures. I could evacuate seven different aircraft in about three to five minutes, okay? This is our training. So the FAA mandates once a year that flight attendants go back to training. So every year I had to requal every year I do my redo my qualifications so yeah so that was added that particular type of terrorism because 
in my initial training or every year, we do review other types of terroristic activity on the plane and what to look for. So yeah, they did train us in that, in what to look for. Yeah. Okay. And what are you supposed to do? Do you, do you know, you notify a, um, a marshal, an air marshal? Well, if they're on the flight, you would, yeah. But um, do you even know if they're on the flight? Yes. Flight attendants do know that they're on the flight. Yes. But they are not to be, if there's like, um, like somebody who's like something stupid, like who's upset about a drink or whatever. Right. You're supposed to even go near them. You don't, they're only there for something that's, you know, um, life threatening for the entire plane, you know? Right. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so basically, you know, that was my, my story. Um, it was happening later on also, like maybe six years later, I was involved in another incident. What was that? I was, I was sitting standby, which is every flight attendant, um, up to a certain amount of years has to do a month of reserve, which means you're at the beck and call of the company with like 15 days off for the whole month. But other than that, 24 hours a day, they can call you and say, come to the airport. Um, my, my duty that day was standby, which is to sit at the airport in case a flight attendant doesn't make it in and fill in on the flight so that the flight can go. Um, so I was sitting standby and, um, they, you know, about our operations and they said, um, flight attendant, how long we have a flight for you? I said, okay, where am I going? They said, you're going, I think it was San Francisco. I can't remember the destination. Maybe it was LA. And I said, okay. And they, I said, what's the flight number? Because after 9-11, my husband wanted another flight number of every flight I was on. So they said, just just go down there now. Go down a gate, blah, 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 whatever it was, 12, whatever. Just go. You have to go now. I'm like, okay. So I go down. I go to the gate. There's nobody there. So I got on the computer at the gate and I pull up my flight. It was at a different gate. So I walk over to the other gate. Gate agent says to me, are you the standby? I said, yeah. She goes, get on the plane. I said, okay. So I get on the plane. I walk on and I thought there was nobody in the waiting area. So I thought, oh my God, they're all waiting for me to get on the plane so that they can leave, right? Right. Get on the plane and there's cleaners on the airplane replacing blankets and all kinds of I get off the airplane, I go back up to the gate agent, and I go, there's nobody on that plane. She goes, yes, sir, the flight attendants are in the back, just get on the plane. I'm like, okay. And they never spoke to me like that. I was just like, wow, what the heck's going on? So I go to the back of the plane, and the flight attendants are in the back of the plane, hanging out, waiting for the cleaners, I guess, to finish. And I said, they looked at me, and I go, oh, how'd they get new? And I said, what? And they said, yeah, how'd they get you? She, you don't know, do you? And I said, no, what? Well, the flight was supposed to go out earlier. The flight attendant saw specific, um, saw behavior from a few of their, um, a few of their passengers that was not right. They were Middle East and they were reading the Quran. They wouldn't take anything from them. They smell like, what was it? Roses. There's all kinds of telltale signs right? before they do one of these things. Okay. Right. So the flight attendants refused to take the plane. They walked off. They told them, we're not taking that plane. So all day, you know, we talked to each other. You know, 
right. very vocal. So we're like telling each other, apparently I never got the message from anybody not to get on that plane because they still intended to take the plane. They, what they did is they, they deplaned everybody. They checked all their luggage. They went through everything again and they had no reason because they could be sued. I mean, obviously you can't discriminate, you know, so they had, you know, they had to take the flight. So, um, they were waiting for flight attendants and they couldn't get enough. We actually went out to flight attendants short for service. There were two levels. One is staffing levels for service. The other is staffing levels for each door in case there's an emergency and you have to evacuate. So they, we went out with two flight attendants short for staffing levels because nobody would take the flight. Um, they boarded the flight. Um, and believe it or not, Pat Benatar was on my flight. <laughs> I would work business class. Her and her husband are dull. But, um, yeah, so she was in my business class working it. But there was one gentleman in my business class, um, at least a gentleman, and he was reading the Koran. And me being, even with my post-traumatic stress, me being the person I am, I wasn't going to let him terrify me. And I walked over and he smiled at him and I said, can I get you something to drink? And... He looked at me and went, no. And he continued to read the Quran. That's the first time. They don't want anything from you. Right. Every, it, once we got in the, oh, let me tell you why the only reason I took the flight was because there were air marshals on my flight. Right. So that's the only reason I took the flight. He went in the bathroom after he came out. I went in the bathroom. I ripped the entire bathroom apart to make sure he didn't put anything in there. I mean, it's... You know, which I want to get out. Our training is much more extensive than what people think it is. Right. Um, once the service was over, one of the marshals walked up front to first class, and I followed him up there, and I said, okay, what's going on? He said, well, he goes, if you want the truth, he said they're part of a terrorist cell that we're watching. And this was six years later. Okay. There's so much that people don't know. Okay. It's, yeah, it's amazing. So anyway. Yeah, that could have just been a test run to see what would happen if they let them on the plane, if they. Exactly. Like, let's go through the whole process. But if they do search us, we'll have nothing on us. There's no reason. They'll let us get on the plane. Maybe it kind of throws them off, you know. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's just food for thought. That was something else. I also am the unlucky person to happen to be four years after um, 9-11, I believe it was four years, I was in London, two blocks from where they blew up the buses and the tubes. As my husband likes to say, you're always there and thank God nothing ever happens to you. It's like that morning was a horror too because, you know, they wouldn't let any buses drive after that. They locked down London for all buses. And um, when they picked me up to come home that mo- that afternoon, um, the bus driver had a park, normally pulls in front of the hotel. They wouldn't let him park in front of the hotel. But I had to get on that bus. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, and the poor little man, his name was Clive, I remember. He used to drive our bus. I did London for 16 years. London was my route after, you know, a few years after 9-11. And um, 
well, Clive, you know, I came out and I said, how are you? And he just shook his head and I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I know. And, but he had to get in that bus and drive us not knowing, you know, I mean, it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. But, and that morning I had Tina that afternoon. I had Tina Louise on my flight. Do you know who she is? No. Gilligan's Island, G Ginger. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And she was awful. And she had to sit in coach because the flight was full. Everybody was trying to get out of London. And she was not happy about it, you know. And her daughter kept going, do you know who my mother is? Do you know who my mother Because she wanted first-class chicken, a whole bottle of water for herself, the big ones. Um, you know, and I wanted to say, yeah, she's some has-been. <laughs> I, I know who you were, who she was. <laughs> Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. That way. Yeah, it's funny. Was I was gonna say that most people I know with celebrities, like either they're super nice or they're just horrible people. Like, you know. So, um, America right. was the was and still is because I guess Prince uh uh what's his name? Just uh one of the princes just flew American from L.A. to the coronation. Prince Andrew. He flew you know, American to London, um, we were, and I guess still are, the airline of the stars because over the years when I worked LA a lot, we had a lot, I had a, we had a lot of stars on the flight, so yeah. Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic con man against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison, and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible. Well, you know, I go with... Uh... God, what is the what is the really horrible one? I'm all people always. I always end up being booked on. God, what is it? Oh, spirit. Spirit. <laughs> it's the worst. It's like um, I have a buddy who's who says it's uh it's the Greyhound bus of the sky. Yeah, that's what we call it. The flight attendants call it. Oh, it it's yeah. the worst. You know, you know, like. But to me, you know, I'm. To me, I I, I typically like. First of all, I'm short. So coach is not a big deal, right. you know, secondly, I typically always have, I download like a movie on my phone or something. So I'll play a movie, put my headphones in and just, you know, 
the reason the reason I worked for Amer I used to work for United Airlines. I worked for United Reservations uh, years ago before I became a flight attendant. And um, the reason I worked for the big airlines, or I interviewed for only the big airlines like Delta, American, and United, is because of the pilots. Because if I was going to have my life on a plane as many times a month. I wanted to make sure that I had the best pilots and those airlines basically hired military pilots. So those guys really know what they're doing in an emergency. So that's basically why I only would fly for American Delta or United. Yeah, I, I have a one, my sister worked at Delta. For, I don't know how long, five years. This was 30, 40 years ago, probably for five or six years. And then I have a buddy who flies for Spirit. Oh, okay. And he does not have military experience. <laughs> he's like, he's young, right? he's he, young. oh, he's young. And he said, I remember he said he learned how to fly. He said, I learned how to fly for a while. He said, you know, I got my my license. And he said, you have to get licensed on different types of planes. So you have different certificates. He said, I got those. And then I met a guy. He was like, you should try and fly for one of the big airlines that I thought. No, that's not. He's like, yeah, yeah, you can. He's like, really? And he said, so I, I, I applied and I got it. <laughs> like, is there you, ha you have to have a certain amount of hours, though. No, he does, and I think he flew pro a, a private. He said you could you take simulations, and then you have to, you know, it's a training. It's a there's a training course, you know, but like they didn't just say here, here's four hundred, here's three hundred people. Do your best, but I have attendant friends who, uh, two of them, male and female, who both became pilots, and um, they both started. Or my one friend now, he's starting at a regional. You start with the smaller planes at a regional, like right. Eagle. He started flying for Eagle, you know. So you take it slowly. <laughs> like, he's pretty. Listen, he is pretty young. Like yeah. he's probably in his early thirties when he started. So it was like, I, you know, as a flight attendant, I get, um, flight privileges. Um, I can also, um, you know, have flight privilege on other airlines. So I remember going on JetBlue because at the time American hadn't merged with useless air, as I like to call them. And we, um, we didn't have a lot of Phoenix flights and I had a friend in Phoenix. So, I would take JetBlue when they first started because they did a lot of Phoenix runs from JFK, which was great. So I could go on them just standby as a standby passenger, you know, for basically 40 bucks or something ridiculous. Right. But their thing was if you were flight crew and you went on their planes, you had to introduce yourself to the pilots. This was their thing. So I'm like, okay. So I get on the plane and I have to go in the cockpit and stick my head in and go, hi guys, you know. I'm with American, whatever. So when I stuck my head in the in the flight deck, I looked in and I went, "Oh my God, he's 12 years old." Yeah. <laughs> I like, oh my God. I was gonna say this guy's been—he's in his early 30s and he's been flying for five, six, seven years. So he must have started in his late 20s. Well, it's expensive. Flight school is expensive. Yeah. Now they have to pay for that. That's, you know, get your hours is very expensive. And they don't start them off at a great, they get, you know, progressively, they get a really good salary, but they don't start them off that way. 
you know, so to pay for all those flight hours, you know, that's why they hired like military pilots, which, you know, the government gave them their flight hours. I mean, they flew for the military. Right. Was Navy, you know, and we could always tell the guys who were Navy pilots because when they came in, they came in like nobody was in the back of the plane. Right. And I would say to them, you know, we're back there, right? You fly for the Navy. And the guy would look at me and go, the pilot would look at me and go, how do you know that? And I'd go, because of the way you came in, like you were coming on an aircraft carrier on a, on a Navy ship or something, you know, it's true. <laughs> you could tell, but anyway. Well, all right. Um, do you have anything else you want to cover? Um, well, about that particular topic, no. Um, about um, how um, the employees at the airlines are treated, yes. Um, I'd like to talk about um, if you've heard anything about um, how they were poisoning uh, their crew members with uniforms. Have you heard about the poison uniforms? Alaska no. are actually sued. Okay. The flight attendants at Alaska Air actually sued because um, they broke out in rashes, have respiratory ailments, um, lost their hair because of the amount of chemicals in their uniform. And when you're in a little metal tube and you're locked up in there and you sweat in one of those uniforms that goes into your skin, I actually have health issues because of the uniforms that my company had us wear for a very short time. Um, there were flight attendants uh, I know who had never been back to work because they were so sick from the uniforms. They got Hashimoto's disease. They got all kinds of stuff. Um, my issue was my airline knew that the flight attendants at Alaska were suing um, because of the chemicals and what it did to them. And they bought from the same company. They must have got a cheap, a really good deal. And they bought the uniforms from the same company. Well, How American got out of it was basically they told us, if you have a problem with the uniform, just wear your old uniform. So we looked ridiculous because half of us were in our old uniforms and part of us were in the new uniforms. So it was kind of ridiculous. Well, I mean, what what, what are they treating the uniforms with something? Well, like? China and all your clothes from China are treated with chemicals that are way above what the European Union would allow in their country. American doesn't America doesn't have any standards when it comes to our clothes. We're allowed to be poisoned in our clothes. So what are they treating? Are they treating it for like with pesticide for so they don't get they don't get bugs, formaldehyde, um, all kinds of cadmium. Um, this is all in your clothing. Um, you know, the wrinkle free thing. Yeah. Well, that's chemicals that are living through. It's getting into your clothes and chemicals through your skin. Um, yeah. So that's another issue I had, you know, that actually there was an, a lawsuit, which I'm involved in, but I have the lawyer's name still here on my phone as an email, but I never heard word one about what happened with it. How long ago was it? How long ago was? Oh, this, the... is, this has got to be, let's see, I'm retired two and a half years. It's got to be almost eight years ago. 
you know. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. It's crazy. Well, it took a long time, you know, for the... Also, I heard UPS, it's called Twin Hill is the name of the company. And I heard UPS also had their uniforms from Twin Hill, and they had the same problem. Rashes, um, all respiratory ailments, uh, pink eye. I mean, you name it, you can, we got it from this particular uniform. It was disgusting. I wore, you know, obviously I went back to wearing my old uniform. I'm glad I didn't throw it out when I got the new one, you know. Um, but just being around it, still, you know. And, and you don't know what happened with the lawsuit? idea what happened i know what happened we'll see um it got thrown out um uh, alaska airs flight attendants their lawsuit got thrown out they it didn't it didn't fly um i don't know if this is you know and big on conspiracy theories but i don't know if this is you know a government related thing or uh i don't know what it i mean corporations i don't know I don't understand how women losing their hair. This one girl's almost bald. Okay, I mean, there's all the same things, the rashes, the, the respiratory problems. I don't understand how they got away with it. I just don't. But, you know, it's another thing on the list of. Well, it's difficult to, you know, sue internationally. And even if you get a lawsuit against a Chinese corporation, the likelihood that they're actually going to pay. Well, Twin Hill, I think, is an American company that buys from China. They're not, you know what I'm saying? So that's a manufacturer. They got to know what's in their product. Right. So there you go. But it's still, it didn't, it didn't work. So I don't know. Like I said, a lot of people I know were very, their health was affected terribly from it. You know, so I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you having me. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. And do me a favor. If you like the video, hit the like button. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell so you get notified of videos like this. Leave me a comment in the comment section. And I really appreciate it. So uh, share the video. Thank you.